0: Hey, (laughs) so so good to see you. I've missed being down here. Um, It's good to see so many familiar faces, it really is. Had a ball in the lobby, catching up with old friends. For those of you I don't know, um, my name is Bill Wellens. I served on the staff uh, here at Fellowship for 17 years. Teaching pastor and organizational leader stepped down three years ago. I do a, a forum, <coughs> excuse me of consulting now, venture leadership help CEOs launch new ventures. Really enjoying that, but we're still uh, at fellowship. We go to Brentwood. We're in the third service up there. My kids are connected up there, so we've stayed at Brentwood, and um, it's been a great joy. Now, now I'm like you, like I I get to sit in the audience and and uh, worship and and um, enjoy the teaching of God's word with you and. I've been mindful of this, really grateful for this as I've thought about um, teaching uh, this weekend down here. And it's just this, I've thought about how grateful I am for the leadership (laughs) that I now sit under like you. You know, I've I've had the opportunity over the last, I guess, 20 years now to be at a number of different churches, get to know a number of different church leaders, really all over the nation, actually. And, And honestly, what we have here, it's rare. And it's rare in this way. It's a unique combination of, of genuine care for the body, okay? Authenticity, that's rare, um, a passion for the gospel, and, and the teaching of God's word. Like, God's word is primary. And that combination, it just is not very many places out there. And I wish it were, but it's just not. And so I was thinking about it. I just thinking about, God, what a privilege it is to be under Rob and Lloyd's teaching, the worship leadership that we have, the pastors that some of you know, and Uh, I'm just grateful this morning. You know, there's no perfect church. There absolutely is no perfect church. And there's stuff that we gotta swallow that we don't like, that's true. But this is a good one. It's a really good one. And uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to get to to be here with you uh, this morning in this role as well. Um, Here's what I I want you to know. We're gonna uh, conclude this morning, uh, the book of Psalms. We've been in it for eight weeks this summer. Uh, Psalms for the whole heart. Rob Sweet kicked off eight weeks ago. Psalm chapter one will be in Psalm 86, which we'll turn to in just a few minutes uh, today. And you know the Psalms, and we've talked about this, Psalms are songs that the ancient Hebrews used to sing. They would sing them on their way to Jerusalem. They would sing them as a part of their worship. So they're songs, but they were actually originally prayers. And uh, this is a prayer of David. And they were originally prayers. And I loved what Rob said the very first week. It stuck with me. He said, you know, psalms are prayers that we don't know how to pray. I think that's actually true, really true. It's especially true in Psalm 86. This, this is a psalm where David is teaching me, us, how to pray in a little different way. I think that's true. One of the things that's funny about Psalm 86 is Lloyd called me back in the spring and said, hey, will you teach this summer," And I said, sure. And he said, pick a psalm and uh, be part of the series. And I said, great. So I'm flipping through the psalms and I get to Psalm 86 and I'm like, man, this is a great Psalm. You know, I wish I'd spent more time in this Psalm. So I'll get to, you know, I'll, I'll teach it. Well, here's what's funny about that is I realized just this last week, I was, um, I was flipping back through some old files, looking for something else. And I found a file that, file that said Psalm 86. And I was like, oh, what is this? Pull out Psalm 86, it's a message. And it's the one that I gave, the last one I gave at Fellowship <laughs> three years ago. And I was like, no wonder I like this Psalm. This is pretty good. And that message must have been awesome because I really remember it. I'm sure everybody else does. Uh, So anyway, my prep this week has been really easy. Um, (laughs) Actually not. That's not true. I'm going to teach it differently today. I really am very differently, actually. And I'm going to do it for two reasons. One is because I'm different today, three years later. I am. You know, God's grown me in ways and I've struggled in ways and I'm just different It's not like what I taught was wrong. I don't believe that at all. It's just, you know, I teach the same truth a little different way. And then second is because I don't think we could ever mind the depth of the Psalms. The richness of the depth of the Psalms is just, it's incredible. So we're gonna look at it a little different way. I think it'll be good. I know it'll be good for me. I think it'll be good for your soul as well. And as we do, here's what we're gonna find. We're gonna find that David's prayer has the power to take a divided heart and make it whole. That in prayer, David's prayer has the power to take a divided, separated, disintegrated heart and make it whole In personal interaction with God. Now, when I say that, you go, oh yeah, wholehearted life in Christ, that's what we're all about. We've talked about that as our mission. Um, uh, Eric was just up here talking about wholehearted life and what our process is and and that sort of thing. So that's, that's really who we are as a church, helping others, helping ourselves find wholehearted life in Jesus Christ. But I wanna remind us of this, and we've heard it before, but you know, the heart, in the scripture is is actually not what you would immediately think. It's not the organ that beats inside your chest. The heart actually is our whole life. That's what they mean when they say heart. It's everything about us. We've defined it this way. It's because of the way the scripture defines it. Our heart actually contains our thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices. That is the whole heart. And what happened with our hearts in Genesis chapter one, when God created humanity, we were made with whole hearts. But our hearts were divided when humanity chose to sin. Of course, sin, just another word for rebelling against God, believing that we can do it better than God, not wanting to follow God. That's sin. So when we rebelled against God, our hearts were broken. And as a result, our relationships were broken, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationships even within ourselves. Those things were were broken. Now, here's the cool part. It's God's greatest desire to take our broken, divided hearts and make them whole again. That, that's what like sin in Christ, we'll get to that. That's what he is all about is, is taking broken, divided hearts and making them like he originally created them to be. We're in this state, it's a problem. God's greatest desire is to make us whole. You can't fully live with a divided heart. You just can't do it. So what I'm suggesting this morning is that this prayer, this kind of prayer has the power to stitch together these Broken pieces to make all four of these pieces one whole heart again. You might imagine them just being stitched together one at a time by the Lord God, our King. Um, I'm going to pull up a picture of a quilt that's my mom's. So you guys pull that up if you would. There it is. Um, Quilts are kind of a big deal in my mom's family passed down from generation to generation. This is one that my great grandmother made for my mom on her wedding anniversary. So it is almost 50 years old. My parents will be married 50 years next year. And if, if I was holding it or you could see it, you would see that it's well-worn, it's frayed in some places, that it's, um, it's faded some by the sun. This is a, a well-loved quilt. And uh, of course been in my home since before, my childhood home since before I was born. And uh, this is called a patchwork quilt, meaning that it was patches that were sewed together and then fitted together to make the whole. So if you look at it there for a minute, like the blue star in the middle, that's a piece of fabric that was sewed on the white piece of fabric underneath it that was sewed on the red piece of fabric. You can see where the red fabric is stitched together. Probably easiest to see there at the bottom. But those were created individually first. So stitched together as an individual part and then stitched together to make the whole quilt. And of course, when the quilt is all stitched together, it's something very different than it is as individual parts, right? So a piece that hexagon shape piece, the star in the middle, that, that wouldn't cover us, right? doesn't provide us comfort or warmth, but when stitched together, the whole quilt is is something different. It changes in its nature, and it's something that, of course, my family for years has enjoyed. Well, that's exactly what God wants to do with our hearts. He wants to take those pieces and make something new. We talk about the power of prayer often, but typically when we talk about the power of prayer, talk about the power of prayer to change circumstances, change some aspect of our lives, to provide for someone or for ourselves, to uh, care for someone who's in pain or sick or um, whatever it might be, a leadership position at work, whatever it might be. And and those things are very important. They really are. It's It's like, I'm gonna couple this with what I'm about to say. Those things can change by the power of prayer. But in this prayer, David teaches us something significantly different. This psalm demonstrates the power of prayer to to change us, not just our circumstances, but to change us, to transform who we are in Christ. This kind of prayer helps us to know the joy that only comes when we are found by him and when we are one, united with God. So I want you to take out your Bible and I want us to see it. I want us to look at what David teaches us about prayer. And it's Psalm 86. And before I read it, while you're turning there, I'll give a little bit of context. This is David, he is um, being chased by his enemy. His, his enemies want him dead. They're actually pursuing him for his life. We know from the prayer, and you'll see this in, in just a moment, that they, these guys are ruthless men, it says, they are godless men. We don't know why they're chasing him, we don't know why they wanna take his, his life. What we do know is that David is suffering under the burden of this reality. And he's crying out to God for deliverance from his enemies. So follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 86. Prayer of David Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me, be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped and comforted me. Now, this is not one of those passages in scripture that needs a lot of explanation, actually. It's not hard to see the things here that David says and understand them. It's not hard to understand what David is saying. No, the key to understanding this text is to understand why. David prayed the way he did, how it changed him, how it would change us. Why did David pray this way? And I believe that David prayed this way so that he could find the wholehearted life he so desperately longed for. And I think we'll, I think we'll see that as we go through the text. Now, I'm not gonna go verse by verse today, which we often do. I'm gonna um, look at David's prayer uh, through a grid that I think he formulated here for us or helped us to see. It's it's a grid of four observations, four things that I think David teaches us about prayer. And and here's the first. Uh, David teaches that prayer clarifies our thoughts. Prayer clarifies our thinking. When we experience something like David is in now, and I don't mean someone necessarily pursuing us to take our life, but I do mean something that We're suffering under some burden that we have on us, some challenge that's right in front of us. When, When we experience something like that and all these thoughts come to our heads, I think it can be confusing to kind of sort all that out. It can be hard to distinguish what's good and true from what's unhealthy and not helpful. And I believe what David shows us here is that the more we pray, the easier it is to see what's true. And David, in two ways, what's true about God and what's true about our relationship with him. You know, it's not unlike processing something that's going on in your life with a trusted friend. It's not unlike unlike that. We sit down, we just start spilling our guts, right? We're venting, we're putting it all on the table. The friend's listening, maybe asking a question along the way. And, and it's like in that verbal processing, so often, it's not always the true, but I would say most of the time, in that processing, verbally, we begin to see things clearer. Okay, well, what the issue really is. I see that a little clearer now. What I'm, how I'm acting in it, I see a little bit clearer how I'm engaging whatever that issue might be. Well, David's an expert at this. And he starts by naming what's true of God. Now, we've seen this before. We've talked about it before, but our hearts cannot be made whole unless we begin with the truth of who God is, okay? We can't be made whole without beginning with truth, right? No way to go through any sort of process of being transformed more and more into God's image without beginning with the truth about who he is and the truth about who we are in him. See, when God makes himself known to us through his word, we are transformed this way. We're transformed by replacing the lies that we believe with the truth he reveals. So we begin with what's true about God. Listen to what David says about God. Verse five, you are good and forgiving. Verse eight, there's none like you. There are no works like yours. Verse nine, you have made all the nations and all will worship you. Verse 10, you are great. You do wondrous things. You, are lo- you alone are the only one true God. Verse 13, you have delivered me from death. Verse 15, you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You are faithful. Verse 17, you are my help and my comfort. We could go back through again. You listen, you answer, you preserve my life. You save, you give grace, you bring joy. You are true, you are strong, you show favor, you are sovereign, you are patient, you are alive, you are able. I went through this text a number of times. I came up with 60 things that David says about God, either directly or indirectly about God's sovereignty. It's incredible, David knows his God. And of course, David doesn't shy away from what's true about himself either. Look at verse one, I am poor and needy. I'm lost without you. Verse two, I am faithful, I trust you. Verse three, I cry out to you. Verse seven, I call upon you, I am dependent on you. Continuing in verse seven, I'm troubled. Verse 12, I am grateful. Verse 14, I'm afflicted. Verse 16, I'm weak. Verse 17, only you, God, can help and comfort me. I've shared this before, but uh, this is the way that I typically begin my time with the Lord. I take a journal out, I open it up, and on one side, I, I I just write down whatever I'm thinking, feeling in that moment. And it could be anything under the sun, just things that are on my mind, things that I'm feeling, things that I'm concerned about, things that I'm hopeful for. I don't take long, but I just write down a few thoughts related to what's true in my life in that moment. And then on the other side of the page, the other side of the book, I guess, that I just write down what I know to be true about the character of God. That's good, he's trustworthy, he's faithful, whatever, just whatever comes to mind. And I don't spend a whole lot of time on that either. But then through, kind of through that grid of what's true about me, where I am and what's true about God, I read whatever my reading is for that day and, and then I pray and it's amazing what God does in that. He begins to clarify my thoughts. It, things happen in the text or that I begin to pray that kind of point to whatever I came in the room with whatever was true about God's character. And there are times, of course, that I, I I don't know what I'm feeling right now, or times I go, who's God? I'm frustrated, whatever it might be. And in those cases, I just open to a Psalm. You can too, typically a Psalm of David. And I just let David's words be my prayer for that day. See, that's beautiful. And of course, when we're doing that, it teaches us more and more how to pray as well. So Prayer, it clarifies our thoughts. David teaches us that. Second, prayer cultivates our emotions. David teaches that prayer cultivates our emotions. You see, prayer is not just an engagement of the mind. It takes us below the line. And it's not hard to hear the emotion in David's voice. In, in fact, I'll just ask you this right now. You've heard it read. You've heard me talk for just a few minutes. Just right where we all are right now with, with all that you know at this point, what are some of the things, I want you to answer this. What are some of the things that David's feeling as you listen to his prayer? Somebody yell one out. What's he feeling? Fear, Fear absolutely. What else? Sadness, for sure he is. What else? Comes to your mind. Hope. Yeah, he does. And what others come to your mind? There's a bunch of them. What else might David be feeling? Love. He does. There's like, you know, call them good and bad emotions. I think all emotions are phenomenal, but these are emotions that are all over the map, much like what we feel when we're facing some significant burden or challenge. A great way to understand what David's feeling is to look at the verbs in his prayer. In fact, this is a great way to study your Bible. You feel the action, the emotion in the movement of the text, whatever passage you might be in. Pay particular attention to the verbs. They help us a ton here. Look at verses one and two. Here's what David says. Incline your ear and answer me. Preserve my life, save me. You hear the desperation in that? Sure we do. Verses three and four, be gracious to me. To you I cry all day, gladden my soul. There's sadness in his voice that was mentioned. Can't be glad or ask for gladness if you're not sad, right? Verses six and seven, give ear to my prayer. Listen to my plea. In the day of trouble, I will call on you. He is distressed. It's all over him. And of course, this was mentioned too. There's hope in his voice. Verses eight through 10, all the nations, even my enemies shall one day, I'm hopeful for this day, can't wait for this day. They will one day worship and glorify God. We see fear in verse 11, gratitude in verse 12, anxiety in verse 14, peace in verse 17. David puts it all on the table, doesn't he? And he shows how critical emotions are to a wholehearted life. You can't be wholehearted without connecting with God at an emotional level, why? because God is an emotional being. That's why we feel he feels toward us. In fact, in this particular prayer alone, twice David talks about one of the things that God feels toward us. There's several in here, but there's one of the things that David mentioned specifically that's repeated, and so I wanna repeat it for us. He talks about the steadfast love of the Lord toward us, verses five and 15. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love. You know what that means? That means covenant kind of love. For those who place their trust in Christ and are sons and daughters of God, that is a covenantal love that cannot be broken. He feels that toward us. It's an enduring love. It will not end and it can't be broken. It's a love that's woven into our hearts, right? And connects our heart with his. So prayer, it clarifies our thoughts. It cultivates our emotions. And third, prayer refines our desires. See, in the context of this prayer, you'll see that David's desires are refined. They're shaped. His longings are a little bit different as the prayer goes along. Now, it's not hard to, to know what David longs for. Again, this is not a hard passage to explain. It's pretty clear. are some of the things that David wants. Uh, he wants to be heard, verses one and six. He wants an answer, verses one and seven. He wants protection. God, would you give me protection, verses two and 16. God, would you grant me grace, verse three and 16. God, joy, would you give me joy even in this, verse four. I could go on, strength, help, comfort. There are some things that are very clear that David asked God for. But I want you to look for a minute at verse eight. Verses eight through 10 is David's desires begin to grow in intensity. It's almost like they're building, 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 momentum, momentum, momentum. It's like he takes a breath. And in verses eight through 10, he pulls back and he reflects for a moment on the goodness of God. Look at verse eight. There is none like you. Wait a minute. Okay, God, glad my soul. Preserve my life. Incline your ear. Protect me. Pause. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. O Lord, they will glorify your name. Verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And it's in this transition and then moving into verse 11 that we see David's desires begin to shape, his longings begin to come something a little bit different. And his desires are aligned more and more with God's desires for him. Look at verse 11. So, okay, pause the goodness of God. Verse 11 Teach me your way, O Lord. God, would you teach me your way? That's different than deliverance from his enemy, isn't it? Circumstances, God, would you deliver me? God, would you keep me safe? Teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth. The Hebrew word for way means path. It's in this case in this context. It's God, show me your path for me. Show me your will for my life. In, in the mind of the ancient Hebrew, our minds don't go here initially, but in the mind of the ancient Hebrew, they would hear way and they would go ancestors. God showed them the way to the promised land. That's where they'd go in their mind. God was a faithful God who showed his way and will do the same for us. So God showed their ancestors the way, out of captivity in Egypt, the way across the Red Sea, the way through the wilderness, the way into the promised land. And so it's, all of a sudden we're hit with this. David's not just concerned with deliverance, but he desires to walk in the way of the Lord, even if that means his enemies chasing, even if that means long dry spells in the wilderness. Do you see how those things are beginning to shape a little bit differently? You see, it's easy for us to desire God's answer to our prayer without desiring to follow him in obedience to his way. I'm gonna come pray, God, would you grant me this? And it's almost like I forget to follow him in his way. It's easy for us to come to him and ask in a time of need and forget to align ourselves to his will. Easy for us to desire a change in our circumstances without the desire to become more like him in the process. And so David teaches us a prayer that begins to shape and refine those desires, aligning them with God's will and allowing God to stitch together another piece of our broken hearts, okay? So God clarifies our thinking. He cultivates our emotions. He refines our desires. And finally, prayer activates our choices. You see, when we meditate on the truth, the truth about the character of God and who he is, the truth about whatever we bring to him in that moment. When we meditate on the truth and then we engage our emotions, kind of go below the line, so to speak, to engage our emotions, what we're feeling, what God feels toward us, then to our desires. And please hear me on this. David's desires are not wrong in the beginning and then right when he makes this transition. We're just seeing God shape his desire some. It's both ends. And then to our desires, Lord, I'm longing for this. Would you do this? Would you change this circumstance? Would you heal my daughter? Would you engage in a way that provides for my family in a different way? Would you do those things? And would you align my steps that I may follow you more closely? When we engage our desires, when we work this process over and over and over again, moving through this, what's sanctification, theological term for life change. When God works in our hearts this way, the only thing that can happen out of that is that we'll make choices, tangible choices of faith. Those things will come. Those things will follow the transformation of the heart. Those things will complete the work of the heart to make it whole. And we see that again here in this prayer. So, Flowing out of his desires to know the way of the Lord, first part of verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God. I will give thanks to you. That's faith in action. One thing I will do, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of whatever the future holds, is that I will be a person who gives thanks to you. What people will know of me, those who know me, what people will know of me is that my heart is filled with gratitude toward my God. And who among us doesn't enjoy being around someone who is grateful, right? It's like, I don't think you can do this. Maybe there's a way you can, but I don't think you can separate gratefulness from humility. I just, I don't think you can do it. It's like, if I'm grateful to God for all that he's doing in my life, no matter what that looks like, I'm grateful for those around me who love me and care about me. I'm grateful for church or job, whatever I'm grateful for, it's hard to be proud at the same time. Hey, look what I did. <laughs> it is. So grateful and humility to go, go together. It's like, we're attracted to those people. We wanna be around those people. We want some of that to rub off on us. I do. You know, it's so easy for me. I've been so convicted about this over the last couple of months. It's so easy for me to be in a situation that I don't like or I'm just, ugh, with and to move toward judgment. It's just so easy for me. It's like, it's gross, but I can do that politics or some statement or some person, whatever, hates me or is angry or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, I want to, you know, I don't want to be grateful right now. (laughs) I'll just put them in their place. It's sick, so sick. But here's the deal. When my heart's filled with gratitude, there's no room for any of that. Just not. My choices are different. My acts of faith look different. Now, David didn't start stop there. I will give thanks to you. It continues in verse 12. I will give thanks to you and I will, decision, action, glorify your name forever, forever. I will worship you and I won't stop worshiping you. Your name will be on my lips, in my mouth. I will speak of you. I will honor you. One guy that I read last week said, I will not wait passively for spiritual maturity to come, I will praise you right now. not that interesting? It's like I hear something, oh, it's good, it's whatever. I'm like, yeah, God will continue to change me to that. No, I'm not gonna wait. I'm gonna take a step of faith right now to worship you. Your name is on my lips. That's faith in action. Those are choices of a whole heart, a heart that has been stitched together, right? Through prayer. Now the most important thing in the text is something that we've yet to talk about. Everything in the prayer points to this. This is kind of the crux of the passage. And there are two phrases here that I want to point your attention to. And there are two phrases and they actually do two things. They reveal David's ultimate purpose in his prayer and they reveal God's ultimate answer to his prayer in these two phrases. Look again at verses 11 and 12. We've been around this, but we hadn't grabbed it yet. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Okay. Unite my heart. There's one of the phrases, to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. Uh, Derek Kidner, who's a theologian who writes, I think he's probably best at the Psalms, but he says this about that phrase, unite my heart to fear your name. It's, he says, is the climax of the prayer, confessing in a single phrase, the disintegrated state of man. Okay, th- in a single phrase, David says, God, my heart is divided. Would you, as the NIV translation says, give me an undivided heart. Message, a paraphrase of the Bible by Eugene Peterson. He says this, put me back together. Then undivided, I will worship you. David's saying, God, would you take all the pieces that are disoriented and discombobulated and disintegrated and do me no good on their own, would you take all these pieces and stitch them into a new creation, a wholeness in me that reflects my unity in you? God, would you give me a renewed mind that might think more clearly about the truth? God, would you give me emotionally healthy relationships first with you? with one another and within my own soul. God, would you give me the desires of my heart and would you make my desires more like your desires for me? And God, would you give me the courage to take tangible steps of faith? That's his prayer. You take my broken heart, put it all back together. And throughout the context of scripture, we know this. This is nothing new. God says to us, yes, that's my greatest desire. Yeah, I, I designed you that way, Genesis 1. That got broken, Genesis 2 and 3. I sent my son, Jesus Christ, that that might be whole again. It's my greatest desire to answer your prayer. It's the thing I want most for you, and that is that you would have a whole heart. Well, how do we know God does that? How does God heal a broken heart? How does he heal our broken hearts? through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only way he can heal our broken hearts. If sin's what broke them, then the remedy to sin is the only thing that can restore them. It's God's righteousness, Jesus Christ's righteousness, the pay the penalty for death when he was innocent. It's his blood poured out for us. His righteousness is bestowed to us. Now God sees us in a different light. He can restore our hearts to him. So we're reconciled into relationship with him. And then over the course of a lifetime, this process over and over and over again, sanctifies us. It's like this, our hearts become more and more whole, more and more complete the power of Jesus Christ on the cross through prayer to our Father in heaven. You see, the power in prayer, the power of prayer is that it always points us to Jesus. This may seem simple-minded. It's the reason we pray in Jesus' name. Why is that? because he is the living power in prayer. In Jesus' name, would you do this? It's the reason we will and always will pray in Jesus' name, regardless of the, what the culture says we can and cannot say about God. We're going to pray in Jesus' name. fellowship. In Jesus' name, would you heal my broken heart? Amen. And God says, it's my greatest desire to